Good morning. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. And if you're thinking, what kind of show is this? Well, I've had this show actually since 2011, and I came to the station in 2007. I started as a DJ and switched gears in 2011, started Get the Funk Out, and you can learn more on the show blog. I feature a wide array of guests from actors, directors, filmmakers, authors, like this fantastic one I have coming up. I'll introduce in just a moment. And the show blog is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you're interested in being a guest or you know someone who would make a great guest, I feature inspirational stories of people going through various ups and downs and curveballs or health and wellness experts and things like that. And you'll get a sense when you visit the show blog. Again, that's getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And you can send a pitch to Janine. That is spelled Janine, J-A-N-E-A-N-E. That's the hard part. J-A-N-E-A-N-E at KUCI.org. All right, so let me tell you about my first guest coming up. Acclaimed author, Vera, I'm going to pronounce her name correctly, Here Anan Dani, uh, has a new book out called A Meal and the After. It is coming out January 23rd, and she's here standing by to tell us about it. It's the highly anticipated companion novel to the Newbery Honor book, The Night Diary, and it's filled with hope and the idea of finding joy after tragedy. The novel picks up actually where The Night Diary left off following the aftermath of the partition of India, the greatest human migration in history. And through Emile's story, young readers will learn of the complicated physical, emotional, and psychological impact that comes from being forced to leave your home and experience many kids globally still experience today. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Vera Hira Anandani. Welcome. Hi. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Congratulations. What does it feel like? This book is coming out January 23rd. Yes, it's I can't believe it's so soon, um, because when you work on a book, you spend years and years, and it thinks it seems like it's going to be so far away, and then suddenly, boom! In a few weeks, <laughs> here I am. Here you are. <laughs> now, tell me the inspiration, because I know you wrote this during the pandemic, and this is a sequel to the Night Diary. But how did this whole idea come about? Sure. Well, I wasn't sure I was going to do a follow-up to the Night Diary when I wrote. The Night Diary, which was now, it came out five years ago, um, I was really writing a complete story and kind of just satisfying that need for that story. And about a year after I wrote it, I was visiting a lot of schools and still talking a lot about the book, but I sort of started missing being in the world of those characters because Mm -hmm. I was talking about them all the time and I was almost wondering what they were up to now. I and love um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of students would say, you know, we we love the night diary. Are you going to do something else? And we'd love to see something from Emil's perspective. Mm. And so that's really, you know, what got me started. You know, that's that's amazing because you don't always know what will resonate with your readers. And here you have these readers contacting you saying we want more and this is what we want specifically. Now, I do want to mention this is for ages 8 to 12, correct? Yes. So it's in that kind of middle grade, you know, YA world. Although I say that my books are from 
ages, I usually say ages 9 to 99, because that sounds good. (laughs) It does sound good. (laughs) I do feel... But 8 to 88, whatever. (laughs) I I do want to say that I feel like this could be read with a grandparent or a parent, you know? Exactly. And I've been able to talk to families who read this book in kind of a generational way. I mean, that was one of my hopes. Um, with The Night Diary and A Meal in the After to talk about the subject of the partition of India with people who went through it. So possibly a grandparent is a survivor. My father is a survivor of the partition. Um, And then the my age kid Mm -hmm. and then my kids, you know, and I know people who have read it, three generations have read the book together. And I was not familiar with the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947. So I actually looked it up and it was, you know, this massive migration. It was violence. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about mm-hmm. why, you know, how you, you know, kind of weave that into the storyline? Sure. Well, so my father grew up in India um, and came here and met my mom. My mom was born here and is not Indian. Um, so he's my father's Hindu and my mom has a Jewish background. So that's my background. Okay. But I, Um, grew up in Connecticut, and I wasn't taught about what happened during the partition of India in school or India's independence, Um, but I heard family stories. I heard the stories that my father had to leave his home when he was nine with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, and they were able to cross the border, um, and this was in 1947, a few months after the partition, which happened between... August 14th and August 15th. Um, And so they left a few months after and went to Jodhpur, India, um, and then eventually went to Bombay, Mumbai now. Um, And so that's where my father grew up and then eventually left Bombay and came to the U.S. But I heard stories as a kid thinking that it was something that just sort of happened to my father's family. I didn't understand the global implications because I wasn't seeing it anywhere. I didn't have a book like The Night Diary. I didn't talk to anybody else about it outside of my family. Um, but I remember seeing the movie Gandhi when I was 11. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and that came out. Um, it was a really big deal. We went and saw it in the theater, and that focuses a lot on... Gandhi's work during independence, mm-hmm. India's independence, and then also what happened during the partition and how he didn't want to see India split along religious lines, and then what happened after when when it did, um, and there were many conflicts, mainly between Hindus and Muslims during this time, and about 7 million Muslims had to go to Pakistan and leave their homes, and about 7 million Hindus and non-Muslims had to leave their homes and go over the new border. That's a huge Um, number, by the way. Yeah, it is a huge number, and it affected millions and millions of people, and it's estimated that 1 to 2 million people died during the crossing. So when I grew up, I, I, I wanted to write a story not only for the people who had family connections to the story to understand it more, Um, because I wanted to understand it more, but for people who didn't know anything about it, because it's such an important part of our global history. Yes. By the way, where did you grow up in Connecticut? I grew up in Wilton, Connecticut. Okay, I lived in Stanford. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I know Stanford well. <laughs> okay. Uh, you must have been thinking, like, why, why are, when we were in school, like, why aren't we talking about my history? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know to ask that question. Sure. So I just, you know, started to realize, oh, this is um, a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. After I saw the movie Gandhi, I was kind of shocked, like, oh, this is what my father has been talking about. I didn't understand that this wasn't just a story, you know, something kind of difficult and sad. There was some reason that my family had to leave. Um, I started to put it all together, and then that started me on years of just asking more questions and thinking about it. I didn't know I'd grow up to be a writer, um, but when I did, I, I knew I wanted to try to write a story, and I wanted to try to write a story for young people yeah. because that hasn't been focused on too much because it is a really hard topic to write about, a really upsetting topic to write about. Um, and as I took this story further with the meal and the after, it was really following this family and asking the question, you know, what happens after we survive something difficult? Um, and I yes. was thinking also about the pandemic. the pandemic because I was writing it in the first few years of the pandemic. And even though the pandemic, unfortunately, is still going on, um, we are also trying to kind of make sense of things and put our lives back together from the, you know, the beginning of it. Yes. And lockdown and everything that we went through during that time. So Definitely. I was thinking about some of those feelings while I was writing the book of what they were going through after they survived, after they were trying to rebuild their lives. You know, Vera, you're one of the few people that, and I agree with what you just said, that said the pandemic is still going on. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, I I keep hearing a lot of people lately, like literally just this week, getting COVID. And um, it's, it's still, you know, a real issue. So, But what I really uh, resonated with, well, I resonated with a bunch of things, is the fact that, uh, you know, you're tying this into the pandemic. You're tying this into, you know, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions of young readers, which is really important. We don't yet know the long-term impact of the of the pandemic. Right. Right. We None of us know. And I have young adult kids now, but they were, when the pandemic started, what, we're year four now? Yeah. Um, you know, that makes a big difference in a teenager's life, like four years. So they felt much younger to me than they do now because they were. Yes. Um, when we started and, you know, just being at home and and not having the, the natural kind of social connections that they should have been doing at that age. Um, and that happened to so many people. And then we were the lucky ones because we were okay after it. Um, and so right. Emil asked that question. They leave their their home and they end up in Bombay. They first go to Jodhpur at the end of the Night Diary, and I hope I'm not giving too many spoilers. <laughs> but then they <laughs> they go to um, Bombay, which is where my father spent many years. And I've seen the apartment there when I visited that he grew up in. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so I, you know, I really, I know Bombay, Mumbai better than a lot of other areas in India. So I wanted to write about it. Um, and it, we're really seeing Emil ask that question, like, I do have an apartment that I live in. 
my father is a doctor and he has a job and I have my sister and I have my grandmother and I have a school to go to, Mm -hmm. but I don't have any friends. I had to leave my home. Scary things happened to me, but I also know that I'm one of the lucky ones. And what does that mean? And should I just feel good about that or should I look and see if I can help other people and that kind of naturally sort of organically happens in the book it's not something that he necessarily sets out to do yes um but he is faced with those questions it's a great it's a great message you know like things are okay with me to a degree but what can I do to help other people yeah and I think we all ask ourselves that all the time you know and the news cycle doesn't stop, and so if you have a roof over your head and you are safe at the moment, yeah. um, that's an incredible amount of privilege. Um, unfortunately, it shouldn't be because everybody deserves that, yes. but it is. So what is our responsibility to the people that do not have that? Yes. What can we do? Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people, as Emil does in the book, he sort of struggles with, And Papa, who's a doctor, you know, also struggles with this idea of, you know, I can't help everyone. Mm -hmm. So you sort of can feel overwhelmed. And it's sort of the idea. I talk about the idea. But if there's one person you can help, um, then imagine if we all did that. By the way, has anybody mentioned to you this would make a, a great movie? (laughs) (laughs) well there is there is um there's a a very talented group of people it's not official yet but working on trying to get the night diary made as a movie so great we'll we'll see that's we'll start there (laughs) animated i hope i know you can't say anything i know you can't say (laughs) yeah possibly (laughs) no pressure (laughs) i I want to touch on something you talk about how great it was to reunite with your characters uh, from your original book the night diary but and you talk about how much you've changed in what way how much i've changed yeah you how much you changed since the first book writing the second book right yeah um well i've been through a global pandemic yes that's for sure (laughs) and I think we've all changed. Um, I think when I write, I really do try, and I'm sure this is the case for many writers, especially in fiction, I really try to immerse myself. It's almost like being in a dream when I'm really focused on my writing and I am just in that world, like the real world isn't the real world anymore, and I'm trying to experience the world through my characters as deeply as I can and so whatever they go through I am psychologically putting myself through that as much as I can which is can be really hard if you're writing about you know people suffering and or kids being scared Um, but I want to write about it as truthfully as I can seeing it through the eyes of my young narrators so I try not to I try to sort of leave myself in a certain sense or kind of imagine myself as their age um, to be able to write about it where I'm letting in the world that they're in um, in the way a 12-year-old might view the world because okay. I don't want to make it too difficult for a young person to read. There are a lot of things that happen during the partition that are hard for me to read as an adult you know there are times or during my research I had to just stop Mm -hmm. um and take a break because it was so traumatic and painful so 
I'm kind of creating this story that's gent- gentler, um, but still, you know, addressing a lot of the things that went on and a lot of the truth, but also taking in what Emil might be able to handle mm-hmm. in his head um, and try to experience the story through his eyes. But then after that's all said and done, I feel like I've been through something. I feel like I'm changed, yes. or I feel like I understand the world in a way that maybe I didn't before. And now that I've written two books about this subject, often what happens is I almost understand human beings less in certain ways and more in other ways. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, because the questions don't always get neatly answered. That's true. You know, why we do this to each other and why we, you know, fight and divide ourselves or think one person's the other or marginalize other groups. You know, why do we do that? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I want to mention, too, that I felt like a meal communicating through drawings would inspire other children or parents to mm. inspire their kids as well. Was that intentional? Yes. Um, so I tend to write about a lot of my characters are, are managing some kind of um, learning difference and also feel sort of separate and other in certain ways in their community for many different reasons. Um, and some of that is because that's, the way I felt. Um, I, you know, grew up in the 80s. I didn't have any specific diagnosis, but um, I only, I, I tended to focus on the things that I liked, and I couldn't really focus on things that I didn't, and something that really held my attention and was easier for me than other things was both drawing, art, okay. and writing, and creating. And somehow when I was in that creative space, I always felt like I was being my full self, in ways that I didn't feel in other areas. Um, And so Emile, who I don't label it in either book because it was 1947, 48, they're, you know, leaving their home. He's not getting evaluated by his school for an IEP, you know, if he's having trouble in school. So he is actually dyslexic. Um, So I, I hint at it, but I don't actually name it. But one thing that's really... Um, much easier for him to express himself is when he draws because then he can see things in kind of this three-dimensional space that's easier for him to capture than writing um, and reading. Sure. And so he's sort of seen as somebody who's just not focusing on school and he's not trying hard enough. But Nisha kind of knows. She has this instinct. Um, And she loves to write and she wrote her diary, but that's not going to be the way that Emil is going to express himself. So she suggests to him... Um, if you want to sort of express yourself um, to their mother who died during childbirth. So Nisha had written a diary to her, and Emil expresses that he wants to do that, but he doesn't want to write a diary. She says, well, why don't you draw? And so we see the drawings throughout the the book, that, and they were done by the um, amazing illustrator Prashant Miranda. I was going to ask, and I love the cover. Yes, yes. Um, well, the cover is actually was done by um, designer Kelly Brady at Penguin Random House with some of the images that Prashant did, but she designed the cover, and then he did all the interior um, illustrations. That's great. I, w- yeah. Because I asked you that question because I felt like, um, it obviously, you know, drawing can be a great outlet for students, and I was not a strong student academically, but I gravitated to writing and doodling and things like mm-hmm. that, and mm-hmm. I, I want to uh, talk about the fact that 
there are certain themes that really stand out and they're timeless, whether you're talking about, you know, bravery or resilience, hope, determination. Are there Mm -hmm. others as well? Um, In the book, I think, you know, that idea of when we try to move on and heal and find hope again after being through something really difficult, sometimes we do put a lot of focus on kind of healing, rebuilding, um, resilience, and that's all good, and that is part of the story. But I also think that if somebody was in a situation where they experienced trauma, and this family did, they walked through a desert, they ran out of water, um, they were, you know, encountered some violent situations. Um, so Emil is also dealing with those wounds and some sort of post-traumatic stress because of it, both Emil and Nisha. Mm-hmm. And so they experience some of that in the book where they talk about just getting sort of memories and flashbacks of scary times and they're wounded by that. That's not something that you can just kind of spin into this positive place really quickly. Like, that's part of who they are now, too. Um, and that may be part of them for a long time, and that's part of a lot of partition survivors' lives of some really difficult memories of that time, which is why it's not an easy thing to talk about. Um, so I wanted to encounter that um, and or have a reader encounter that to understand that that's part of the kind of the whole truth of what something like this might um, be like. And I don't know, you know, what other kids have experienced, but or people who have experienced very difficult things even during the pandemic and sort of how we're all yes. changed in that kind of collective trauma that we experienced. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of get at that, but in a way that, again, is sort of childlike and... Um, through that eyes of just just feeling the feelings without necessarily like this is what this is uh they have you know post-traumatic stress disorder i didn't want to kind of use those labels it's just they're just having feelings yes that are natural for what they've experienced yeah i think it's i can see why this would really resonate uh, with your target audience eight to twelve because it would inspire them to you know not suppress perhaps but to Mm -hmm. express through you know, creative writing or drawing sure. or whatever it is. And it's, again, it's so important because of what we experienced the past several years. Yeah. And they both turned to art, Emil and Nisha, writing mm-hmm. and drawing, to kind of not only escape some of the things that they're feeling, but to make sense of it, um, to create the worlds that they want, they wish, you know, existed, um, all the reasons that children make art and adults make art. So Yeah. Now, I want to uh, dive into the incredible praise you're getting. How does it feel? You've got Kirkus reviews, and wow. How does this feel right now? It, I mean, it feels great. It, when I, if I'm lucky enough to get a good review, and that first review, if it, the first review is a good review, and the first review I did get was the Kirkus starred review, I mean, I... There's a part of me that just doesn't believe it in a sense <laughs> that somebody thought that <laughs> my book was that good. Um, so, but I'm also just so relieved that somehow I'm of not going to, yes. you know, be publicly humiliated somehow because yes. you just, you don't know, you, you know, how know. your book is going to land. Of course, I trust my editors, and my agent, and they would tell me if it really wasn't working, but yeah. you still don't know. You and, do, you um, don't know. 
So it feels it feels amazing. Amazing. And I just hope it gets in the hands of more readers because of it. You bet. Can you just talk briefly about your life as an author and your writing teacher in Vermont? Sure. Um, so I I teach at the a low residency MFA program at the Vermont College of Fine Arts for writing children writing for children and young adults. And it's a low residency program, so we go in person twice a year for a few weeks, once in the winter, once in the summer, to kind of do a sort of writing boot camp and lots of workshops and lectures um, to sort of almost do a whole semester in two weeks. And then I work individually with students during the semester. Um, So we get to work one-on-one online. And it allows a lot of people to do an MFA where, you know, if they're working or they, they can't necessarily take two years off. Um, That's great. To be somewhere. So, and, and for me, it's also, you know, a, a part-time teaching gig so I can kind of fit it in my life as a writer. That's great. Because I want to keep writing. That's fantastic. <laughs> where can people find more about you? They can find more about me at com on my website, and then I'm on Instagram at VeraWrites, and I'm on X, used to be Twitter, <laughs> yes. um, at VeraHira, so I'm still on there, and that, the, that's where I post most of my kind of up-to-date events and Fantastic. things like that. Well, congratulations. I'm really Thank excited you. for you. I know your book's coming out very, very soon. I put all yes, the information January on the January 23rd. 23rd. <laughs> I put all the information on the show blog, and this will be up as a podcast uh, within an hour after I wrap, and I'll send you a copy. Excellent. Well, mm. thanks for having me. Absolutely. I enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Take care. Congratulations. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Vera Hernan, Hiranan Dani, and we were talking about her forthcoming January book, which comes out the 23rd, A Meal and the After. It's a follow-up to her moving bestseller, The Night Diary. Again, you can find out more on the show blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. We're going to take a little break, and then we will be back. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.